Buddy, invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 41, verse 10. If you need a head start, it's page 587. If you're using the Bible there in front of you, while you're going there, um, we have a black BMW with lights on, <laughs> license plate B23LFD. If uh, you don't want to get it now, we have a lot of people with jumper cables that will meet you afterwards. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10, notably Isaiah 41:10 this morning as we continue the series we began last week on the promise of the promises of God, taken from John Bunyan's great Pilgrim Progress picture of the Christian and hopeful there in Doubting Castle under the brow, the, the beatings of giant despair, remembering have the, they have the key, which is promise that unlocks the doors of their dungeon. And that, that metaphor, just a beautiful picture of what the promises of God are designed to do in our lives. And we're beginning this morning to start looking at some of those promises, this particular one here in 41, verse 10 of Isaiah. When you grow up in suburban Long Island, uh, you don't have a lot of terrifying experiences. As a matter of fact, for me, uh, I actually had to be sent away after I just turned 15 to a basketball camp up in Connecticut for two weeks in order to have my first really truly terrifying experience. Little did I know when my parents dropped me off at summer camp that I was about to have a werewolf and bats as a part of my 15th summer. We were at the basketball camp. It's later in the week, and we were all standing around sort of the common area um, where the snack shop was. The trees were all around us. It was right bordered by forests everywhere. And it was dark. We're just hanging around, talking. And uh, two of the older guys came in. I didn't know who they were, but I, I recognized them. They were older guys. They came in, and you could just see it was sort of shadowy, but they came out of the forest, and they, was, they were obviously shook. And they, they came in, they sort of, they ran over to a bunch of us sitting there, and they said, look, can you guys help us? We got a friend who's still out in the woods, and honestly, there's something out there. Well, so about eight of us trooped along, didn't know what we were getting into. I remember I had a bottle of Coke in my hand, and uh, so we're trudging along, and we're way back in the woods. It's a quarter mile, third of a mile that we've gone in. We're just away from the camp, and we're down by the pond that was out in the woods, and it's dark, and there's moonlight, but that's about all. And, and I, it was a surreal experience because I, I had seen a lot of horror films, and I knew how this went. You get out in the woods, and there's always the, the token mockers, you know, the two guys that are just making fun of the whole experience, and we had them, and these two guys are there, and they're just going on and on, oh, yeah, something scary in the woods, and I'm just thinking, you know, you're just the kind of guys the, the, the thing gets, and, <laughs> and so I had positioned myself not in the back and not too far in the front, and it was as, it was secure as possible. I, I was a little apprehensive. So we're out there, and these guys are just talking, and they're, they're shook, and they're, you know, they're getting me worked up. So we get out in the woods, and we're, we're way back in, and, and we came to a section where there must have been some opening in the tree line because all of a sudden the moonlight sort of showed in this, this, this area, and we, we came, we sort of turned, and we, we're a little group, and all of a sudden this, this thing, 
growling, menacing thing jumps out and just horrific looking thing. And I don't remember too much after that. <laughs> I do know that my soda bottle literally went up in the air and I found myself very quickly back in the commons area first. I was the first one back. And I remember going in, and you know, when you're terrified, but you're also, you, you still know you need to be cool. So I was really trying to not say, ah! But I came and I just said, there's something out there. And they're looking at me. And, and then the other guys start staggering in, and they're scared. And then the two guys come in, and they've got a third guy with them. And he's carrying in his hand this big, ugly, scary rubber mask that he had gotten in the mail that day. So obviously we're embarrassed and trying to put a bold face on it. But still, it was, it was an unnerving experience. I went to my cabin. It was pretty late. And I climbed into bed and I couldn't sleep. And I'm lying there just thinking, oh, that was terrible. And all of a sudden there's screaming in my cabin. I mean, screaming. And this guy is just screaming, waving his arms. So somebody throws on the light and there was this bat. Now, I'd never seen a bat before flying around in our little cabin. And so everybody's grabbing pillows and, and, and brooms. And we're <laughs> yeah, that part was actually fun. But we, we not for the bat, but we, we eventually terminated the bat. And there he was. And I discovered bats are uglier and creepier looking than, than I ever even had imagined. And then, of course, there's one science genius that's talking about, you know what bats do? Bats actually burrow into your hair, and you can't get them out. I spent the entire night under my sleeping bag. I literally woke up the next morning with heat rash. It was a terrible night. It was a, it was a terrifying night in a lot of ways. Now, I recognize that on the scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being high, that my terrifying experience barely hits a two. But that was my, my background. Fear was not a major part of my experience. When I went to Taylor University, came to know Jesus Christ at the end of my, my freshman year, began my spiritual journey with Christ, fear was not an issue that I would have identified as one of my big spiritual issues. Pride, lust, anger, Self-centeredness? Absolutely. But fear? No. I, I just, I didn't really know what I had to be afraid of. Fast forward a few decades, and I have come to learn that fear is a very prominent part of my entire life. I would suggest to you that for all of us, fear is one of the most powerfully destructive influence and most of the destructive habits in our lives, most of the destructive behaviors in our lives are born out of things we fear. This passage is a promise to those in fear. It is a promise to those who are afraid. And I'd like to look at this passage this morning recognizing that it's addressed to Isaiah's people, the Israelites, 
But as Paul points out in the book of Romans, not all Israel is Israel. The idea is that he is truly speaking to what he calls the true Israel, those that have embraced God as the center of their lives that are doing life with God. And it is a promise that I think is relevant for any child of God, any of the true Israel, if you will, of, of, of our day, because Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. It is a book that he loved to share with people that were embracing him as Lord and center of their lives. So this morning, I'd like to look at Isaiah chapter 41. I'm going to begin at verse 8, but the focus is verse 10. Here's what we read. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Lord, for those that are here that are very conscious of things they fear, I pray that your spirit would apply this passage in a, in a, a beautiful way in their lives. For those that are here that are living under the influence of fear but don't even recognize it as such, I pray, Lord, this message also would illumine their minds that, Lord, we might see the relevance of this incredible promise you give to us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at two things this morning. First, and I'm going to take two weeks on this particular verse. The first week today, I'm going to talk about why do we need this promise and then get into what the promise actually says. The promise actually promises two things. We're going to look at the first of those today. But first of all, why do we need this promise? Because it starts off this way. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. There are two reasons why we need this promise. Number one, we need this promise because fear grips everyone. He says, do not fear. Literally, do not continually giving in to fear. It is the most repeated command in the Bible. There are over 140 specific statements when God speaks to a people or an individual and says, do not be afraid, do not fear, more than any other command in the Scripture. God knows our wiring. He knows our vulnerability to be controlled and dominated by fear. And if God commands this more than anything else, it indicates we are likely to be afraid. And there are some common fears, I think, that people have. And I'm going to I'm spending these next few minutes doing this because I want you to see the pervasiveness of fear and how it does affect our lives. One thing that I think people fear, and, and there are passages that we could use to illustrate every one of these, there is the fear of being limited. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where Aragorn, the promised king, the, uh, the anointed one, uh, actually is speaking to a, a young woman named Eowyn. Eowyn is the ward of the king of Rohan. And he asks her, what do you fear, lady? And she says, a cage. To stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them. 
And all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. What do you fear? To be in a cage, to be limited, to not be able to fulfill my goals, desires, my dreams. Lots of studies have shown that this is a common fear of prominent leaders. It's been often said that most leaders are, uh, most prominent leaders, many are, are really influenced by fear. They're driven by fear. That this is a, a picture of the driving force be, behind many of the great exploits of history. The fear that he won't reach his goals or she won't achieve her destiny or make their mark pushes people forward. Now, we often look at this as a positive quality. And we give it terms like uh, tenacious or driven or passionate. But in reality, the fear of being limited is a fear. It's fear that drives. Another fear, very common in our day, is the fear of failure. J.K. Rawlings, the author of the Potter series, Harry Potter series, uh, spoke at the commencement of Harvard Business School and in a magnificent talk. And she was talking on the subject of, of failure. She talked about how when she had first written her book, she had been turned down by 13 publishers, finally got her first book published and the publisher paid her about a little under $3,000 and said to her, basically, don't quit your day job because you will never make a career out of writing children's books. Wonder what his day job is today. But, <laughs> but in her Harvard commencement speech, this is what she said. What I feared most for myself at your age was not poverty, but failure. I think it fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew." We all have different definitions of failure and success for ourselves, and most of us may not be as self-aware as G.K. Rawlings to what our measure of success and failure is. But when we feel we are on the verge of failure, or even see the clouds of it on the horizon, we feel the icy grip of fear. Fear of failure is a real thing that drives many people and can be a captivating reality in our lives. Two others, fear of scarcity. Few people in the Western world have to deal with a desperate fear associated with potential starvation. But as we saw the horrific videos of people jumping off of Manhattan high-rises during the recession of 2008, it was a stark visual of the power of fear when financial loss or lack looms. Financial scarcity can be a threat that evokes fear. Vocational capacity and the scarcity of it. it can, intellectual lack can cause us to feel fear. There's all kinds of things. There's a new one that is out there. It's not a new one in human experience. It's a new one by definition. It's called, it is actually talking about the fear of lack in social relationships, uh, scarcity of relationships, scarcity 
of uh, life experiences. In our media-rich world, it's actually been given a, 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 an acronym, FOMO. Now, I didn't think anybody ever heard of this. I just came by this a while back when I was studying fear, and, uh, but I was in the office this past week, and Lisa Myers was there at the desk, and and I, I said, uh, I came down the hall, and I, I noticed one of the guys' door was open, and it's usually open. I said, I don't know how he does that. I don't know how he can get work done, because there's so much activity and people talking, going up and down the office halls all the time. And she said, she said, FOMO. I said, what? She said, FOMO, the fear of missing out. And I was, I was all excited, because I said, you know what FOMO is? She said, yeah, I, I was at a conference recently, and it was, a, it was a whole seminar. FOMO is such a reality in our life. Well, what is that talking about, the fear of missing out? It actually is coined from a study. It was an article that was written in the, in the Harvard Business Journal. It was written by a guy named Patrick McGinnis, and it was called Social Theory at Harvard Business School. It's about a presumably fictitious Harvard student, but basically what he did was he, he was so afraid of missing out on experiences that he actually scheduled appointments to just hang out and, and go drinking with friends every 50 minutes, starting early in the evening and going up into the wee hours of the morning. And, and he, just, he just didn't want to miss out any possible experience. So he, he did all this. And then operating from this fear of FOMO, the day before all those scheduled appointments on a Friday night, Thursday, he got an email invitation from a friend to go to the Boston Red Sox game, box seats, and go to an exclusive party afterwards. And he couldn't go because he was too embarrassed to cancel all his appointments. And so the author, uh, McGinnis, says he now not only had FOMO, the fear of missing out, but he said now he was struggling with FOBO, the fear of a better offer. Now, lest you think, what are you talking about, Mark? This is just bizarre. I mean, you're just throwing letters out. This actually is so relevant in a social media world where people are so much driven at looking at the pics and, and oh my goodness, uh, uh, we never do that as a couple. Or, oh my goodness, my kids never have that experience. I, we don't have picnics like, you know, on and on and on it goes. And you, there's so much a fear of I'm missing out on life or, or, or I might miss a better offer that this actually has been put in the new Oxford Dictionary. You can look up FOBO and you can look up FOMO and they have actual definitions. It's real. And the article and its two fear-induced maladies, FOMO and FOBO, struck such a chord that they are in the New Oxford Dictionary, the fear of being short in relationships or experiences have to be included in our list of fears of scarcity. But the most common and certainly the most highlighted fear that the Scriptures talk about is what is known as the fear of man or the fear of people's opinions and actions. It is the fear that danger, the, the danger that people present to us. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man will be a snare. That it's a trap, but it is one that we have all been ensnared by at one time or another. Fear of how people can harm me, can do physical harm, can do emotional harm. But it is also fear of how people's opinions can be destructive. The fear of opinions that threaten us. 
that we could hear from them a verdict of unworthiness or that we're not acceptable is frightening. Peer pressure is just a common euphemism for this aspect of the fear of man. It affects everybody. I've mentioned this scenario before. In the Watergate hearing, Senator Howard Baker was interviewing a young guy whose name was Herbert Prentice, Herbert Porter. And Herbert Porter was um, an official in Nixon's presidential campaign group, not a, not a big-time guy, but someone who had enough insider information to know some of the illegal behavior that was going on. And when the Watergate hearings were held and he was, he was brought in and questioned, and here he is actually answering questions, Howard Baker asked him, Senator Howard Baker asked him, did you not at some time feel, and I am getting into your mental processing here, did you not at some point feel this is not appropriate? This is wrong. To which Herbert Porter responded, yes, sir. And then he asked at that point, why did you not say something? And he said, probably because of the fear of group pressure that would ensue of not being a team player. There are all kinds of fears. And I'm throwing those out this morning just to sort of wet the whistle of you will. If you're one of those that would say, like I would have said as I went to college in my early Christian journey, well, well, pride, yeah, some of those, yeah, absolutely. But fear, come on. Fear affects every one of us. And one of the reasons that we need this command is just because all of us have the grip of fear that impacts us. But secondly, not only does fear grip everyone, fear impacts everything. And here I want to climb into our passage because it affects our perspective. You'll notice what it says here in verse 10. So do not fear for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Fear and dismay are associated on parallel tracks. The word dismay is actually from the word to look, and it is in its heightened form. It means you're, you're looking all around, that you're constantly doing like, like this guy. Your, your face is going all around and furtively looking. This is the picture of fear. It's exactly what talking. This is what dismay does. Fear, oh, this is what dismay is, resulting from fear. It causes you to, you can't concentrate. You're distracted. You're constantly looking. What's going on? What's coming next? How am I going to deal with this? I got to be prepared. I got it. The whole idea that he's presenting is this is what fear does. And if you find yourself unable to concentrate, distracted, I call it gnawing on the bone. You're just sort of gnawing on the bone. You're going over it, and your wife or husband or your, or, or your close friends just say, man, you're just saying the, you're saying the same thing over and over. You keep rehearsing what, what's bothering you, what you think. Probably fear is in there. It, it, it's, it's what fear is. It distracts us from the things that we want to do. Fear is controlling. It's powerful, and it's a dominating emotion. Fear impacts everything in our energy. Joshua, the great general, had been appointed by God to lead the people of Israel. And this same word for fear is associated there. And now here's, here's Joshua. He comes on the scene, and he's replacing Moses. Legendary Moses. Legendary Red Sea crosser. 
Egyptian army conqueror. Ten commandments communicator. Oh, by the way, he's gone. Now, Joshua, you're the guy. These were big shoes. He struggled with it. He struggled with his own fear of inadequacy, of not being enough, of not being able to make it. And so God said this to Joshua in, in one of seven passages where God tells him not to fear. Joshua 8, verse 1 and 2, do not fear and do not be discouraged. The word for discouraged is literally the word to be crushed or to be shattered. Fear tends to shatter your strength. It tends to crush your will. It drains you of energy and it sucks the life out of you. Fear affects everything. It makes it hard to get up. It makes it hard to keep going. It makes it hard to face things. You find yourself not having the drive, not having the energy because fear is underneath it all. And the third thing that why, how fear impacts everything, it affects your relationships. It affects your responses. Isaac, the son of Abraham, and again, the same word as you in the Old Testament here. Isaac, the son of, of Abraham, is uh, married to a good-looking woman. He's proud of her. He loves her. But the self-absorption of fear won out over protection and love. Genesis 26, 7 says this. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she is, was attractive in appearance. Now Isaac normally was a, a pretty good guy. He became a total jerk. What happened? I mean, he sold his wife out and God miraculously stepped in and protected her. He loved her. He cared about her. But his own self-absorption of fear made him sell out his wife to protect his own hide. Fear can get you to do awful things. This is, this is one of the most important things I want you to take away this morning. Fear and love cannot coexist. First John says, perfect love casts out fear. Fear and love cannot operate in the same human heart. If you're influenced by fear, the degree to which you're self-absorbed by fear is the degree to which you can't love others. Fear's important. Fear's powerful. Fear's controlling. I said all that in just looking at the very first part of the verse because I want you to see how important this promise is. It speaks to every one of us. So what do we see that God promises? Well, note what he says in the latter part of verse 10. So do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There are two things that God promises here. He says, first of all, I will strengthen you. And secondly, I will help you. Now, on first reading, it's easy to look at that and say, well, yeah, it's sort of, you know, God's talking on parallel tracks. You know, he, the idea is he's saying, I'll strengthen you by helping you. Or I'll help you by strengthening you. But that's not what he's saying. They are two completely different terms, and they have two completely different significances. The word strengthen 
is used many times in the Old Testament related to individuals. And in each case, when God talks about strengthening individuals, he is talking about an inner strength. We'll see why I say that in a moment. It is an inner strength usually associated with moments of fear. It is internal. It is an internal strengthening. But if you've lived your Christian life at all or just done life, you know that there are situations you're in where God strengthens you and you have boldness and you have peace and you have courage, but you need something external to happen as well. Yeah, this, this situation, God has given me strength to endure it, but Lord, I can't. It's not going to just be my boldness that is going to work this situation out. You need not only strength, you need help. You need aid. And the word here is used, that is translated help, is the word used in the Old Testament of military aid. That God is saying this, I'll help you. I mean, I'll strengthen you from within. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you peace. I'll give you a, a quietness of heart. I'll give you courage. But I'll also fight for you. I'll also be your warrior captain. I'll also be the general who will marshal my forces. And next week we'll look at what that means. We need both, right? There's situations, some of you in it, yeah, you, you need God. You, you, just, you need God to sustain you and strengthen you. But you also need God externally to move. That's what he's saying. I got it. I got you. I got it. So this morning, just the moments we have together, what does he mean by this internal strength? That I will strengthen you. Well, I mentioned that the term in the Old Testament is continually relating to inner strength. In a negative sense, it is used of people hardening their hearts against God. But the idea is that, that, he, that he, he gives strength to us. He, he stiffens our will up. He, he gives us the ability to keep going in the midst of what would be a fearsome, frightening moment and scenario. How does he do this? In two ways. Number one, he reminds us of who we are. You'll notice the beginning of this passage. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Now, if you know theology at all, you know one of the attributes of God, the attributes of God's greatness, is the fact that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So you might look and say, well, what kind of a promise is this, God? I mean... Of course you're with me. You're with everybody. You're everywhere. You're in the, you're in the, in the, in the galaxies, billions of galaxies away. You're here. You're, okay, you're with me, but I, you're everywhere. I mean, I, what do you mean? Well, if you look at the verse just before it, he's building off this. He says, you're my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So don't fear, for I am with you. I am with you in a way that I am not in other places. I am with you in a way of providing help, that I will fight for you, that I will sustain you, that I will be with you. Why? Because I've chosen you. I've made you mine. You're, you're one of my own. It is, it is a promise of aid. And I, over the last year, have spent 
uh, actually a lot of time. I studied every verse in the Scripture, Old and New Testament, every use. And there are hundreds of, of uses of the word fear in the Bible. In the overwhelming majority of passages, when God says, do not fear, the reason he gives is this, I will be with you. I'll be present. It is the presence of God that he offers to people that are feeling fear. Now, I would suggest to you that is not only a promise of military aid or aid. That's involved in the word help. It is also a promise. It is not only a promise of aid. It is a reminder of relationship. He's saying, I will be with you, the one that I've made my own, the one that have, that have ensconced me as the Lord of their lives, that has made me the center. I will be with you. J.I. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God, as he talks about being known by God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, as one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. What I think God is saying to us, many of you are fearing. Not simply somebody's going to come into your house and attack you. You're not fearing a werewolf. You're not fearing external things. What you're primarily feeling, fearing is failure. It's, it's fearing You'll be rejected by people. It's fearing that you won't be enough, that you'll be insufficient for what you, the situation. The first way God strengthens you is to remind you who you are. It wasn't only Mufasa that said that to Simba and Lion King. Remember who you are. God says it to you. He says, you're my chosen one. You're my child. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm, as Psalm 3 says, I'm a shield around you. I'm not promising that to your neighbor. I'm promising that to the people that have embraced me as the Lord of my lives. And he says, the first antidote for fear is knowing that I am with you, not only because of what I'm going to do, because what it says about who you are to me. It is in the fact that he is with us, that he is for us, that he who spared not his own son, how will he not freely give us all things, he says in Romans 8. But the second way he strengthens us is by reinforcing us from within. When this term is used, I will strengthen you, this strength produces stabilizing courage and energy. I'd like to just show you a few passages. As you look here in, in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to all the people in one of the accounts in chapter 31, and then specifically to Joshua, and he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. In the book of Joshua, God comes to Joshua, and all those passages down below, he speaks to him specifically, one of them, to all the people, and he says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You'll notice constantly this ref refrain, be strong and courageous. Have courage. Where does the courage from, come from? 
by being strengthened. He says this in Chronicles, be strong and courageous, David to his son Solomon. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Second Chronicles, King Hezekiah, and they've got the Assyrians coming, the, 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 this terrifying army of Sennacherib who took all of their, their opposing armies and were famous for impaling them on, on 10-foot stakes they put in the ground. They just stuck the guys on and watched them gradually go down. That's how they treated the, the generals of other armies, this pointed stake going up through their body. They were fearsome, frightening people. And Hezekiah turns to his boys, they are all his commanders, and he says, guys, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. God gives an inner strength to face our fears. He gives us courage to stand, to obey him, to not be cowered by the raging lions who seeks to devour us. He does that from within as he strengthens us. But not only does he give us courage, he gives us a resulting energy. That same word strengthened is used in Job where it says you've strengthened the faltering knees. In Isaiah, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. The picture of, of people that, if you've ever felt this way, you're just so terrified in a moment, you find your knees actually giving out, that you have to sit down. You're just so stunned with, with terror. The idea he's saying is, he will give you strength. Strength to endure, strength to keep going, strength to face what is causing dread and that debilitating result of fear. The Apostle Paul had written to a church that was his, the church he knew the best, the church of Ephesus. He'd been there three years. He'd never been more than two than, than a couple of months at any other church that we know of, a church that he knew well. He prayed two prayers for them in the book of Ephesians. Here were his two prayers. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 18, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. He says, secondly, in Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul says, what we need is strength. We need strength that overcomes dread and, and fear, which so dominates and influences our lives. Spurgeon talked about the influence of that when he says this in his book, Faith's Checkbook. There's no telling how much power God can put into a person. When divine strength come, human weakness is no more a hindrance. Do we not remember seasons of labor and trial in which we received such special strength that we wondered at ourselves? In the midst of danger, we were calm. Under bereavement, we were resigned. In slander, we were self-contained. And in sickness, we were patient. God says, I will strengthen you. Some of you need that strengthening today. Some of you know what it means. Even the thought of the things that are causing you to be fearful is, is a dread experience. But the Lord says, I, I'm practically involved with you. I want to be tapped into. I want to be leaned into. And what happens when we do, we have a resource in ourselves that is not our own. In Acts 4.13, Peter and John came before the religious leaders, and here's what happened. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized 
that they had been with Jesus. Ordinary men with an extraordinary God, many of you are in over your heads. The world is hard. Life is challenging. Maybe you really feel you are targets of the enemy. There are reasons to fear. But there are reasons to remember. I will strengthen you. He's talking to people like us. Broken, fearful, needy people. That God says in Psalm 147, with this I'm closing, verse 11, 10 and 11, he says, I'm not pleased with the, the horses of, of Egypt. I'm not pleased with the, the legs of a man, which means people's greatest strength, your biggest muscles are in your legs. He says, but I delight in this, in the person who fears me and who hopes in my unfailing love. He says, I... I'm not impressed with strength. I'm not impressed that you're an alpha personality and you can run over everybody just because you don't ever second guess yourself. I'm not impressed. It's not strength to me. He says, what I'm impressed with is people who are fearful, people who are needy, who hope in the fact that my love will not fail them. That's what I delight in. Maybe that's what he wants you to hear this morning, that he wants to delight, he does delight in his children that trust in him, that allow his strength to be a strength that you and they don't have. A strength that comes from the one that says, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. Lord, I boldly thank you this morning for everything in our lives that's making us afraid. I give you praise for everything that is there that is causing us to feel our weakness, to fear our vulnerability. Because God, I believe you allow those things ultimately that we might be reminded that life is not ever designed for us to live independent from you. So God, use those things in your grace to prompt people in this room this morning or watching online to say, I don't have it. I'm in over my head, but that they might draw near to the one who says, I will strengthen you. Lord, do that in our lives. Use these experiences. Some people are in crisis. God, don't let us waste a crisis but rather find in this crisis time a chance to draw more deeply in dependence on the one whose love never fails. In whose name I pray, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.